Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Nikolai Petro. He is professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, editor of Ukraine in Crisis, and author of the forthcoming book, The Tragedy of Ukraine, also a board member of the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord. Nikolai Petro, thank you for joining me once again. Nice to be with you, Aaron. Let me start by asking you your views on the Russian invasion so far. Were you surprised that Russia went ahead with this invasion and your thoughts on how it's going so far? Yes, I was with the mainstream policy analytical community in uh, in not taking the uh, intelligence assessments uh, that we were being given as um, gospel. And I thought uh, that if uh, Putin had demonstrated them to be false, that he would have had the upper hand in the long run in negotiating. But I was wrong. And um, as a lot of people that I admire who are older and wiser than I, like Jack Matlock, for example, is uh, also uh, admitted uh, and said the same thing. So this is um, a a tragedy, a word I use a lot, but also uh, a disaster in uh, the mutual relations between Russia and Ukraine uh, in the European context. It will be very difficult for Russia to overcome. I am, like many people, puzzled by the strategic goal, but I do understand the logic of his explanation as to why he felt there was no alternative for Russia strategically, but to act and to act now. So uh, the uh, argument uh, is threefold. Uh, One, that Russia uh, got a flat rejection of any negotiation on a key red line uh, for Russia, which was further expansion of NATO along with uh, two other key demands that were in Russia's vital security interests, the uh, placement of strategic weapons uh, aimed at Russia on its border, specifically in Ukraine, which could have occurred and was already being negotiated regardless of NATO membership. For example, Britain had made an agreement to build an alternative port and to fund it and subsidize it uh, for Ukrainian armed forces on the Black Sea. All of this being done to NATO NATO standards so that the transition, should that occur, would be easy. Um, And I guess the third... uh, The third concern, which was uh, rejected, was a restoration to the conceptual framework uh, of uh, NATO before expansion that 
was ratified in a different international organization, the Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe, namely the vision of a Europe in which Russia would be a co-constituent of the security framework. The Russians refer to this as indivisible security. So when you strengthen your security by joining whatever alliance, making whatever agreements you have the right to make, you do have the right to make that, but you should not do it in uh, as a zero-sum game with respect to our, to our security. You should be taking our security interests into account, just as we should be taking your security interests interest into account. And one country's security mean, can't come at the expense of another country's security. That's right. And this would require either the expansion of NATO to include Russia or some alternative organization. Because the way that NATO expansion was conceived and being executed was de facto excluding Russia. Didn't matter what kind of organization it claimed to be, it was in effect creating a dividing line by never admitting Russia. The, remember, there were at least three that we know of public efforts and proposals by Russia, or requests, I should say, to be uh, uh, to be uh, considered for NATO membership, begin the process, and all of those were turned down. So the prospect moving forward was of uh, NATO being and the non-Russia, the, the security uh, organization uh, aimed at excluding Russia from European security. So that's those are the three uh, the three main points uh, that um, well, that Russia felt were, as Putin put it in his uh, uh, early declaration uh, of the invasion. Which, by the way, I, I uh, along with everyone I know, deems to be illegal, unacceptable, and uh, and clearly uh, an un an unwarranted aggression. Um, but that doesn't really matter from a realist perspective. As John Mearsheimer will tell you, uh, it's not about uh, perception. It, it, uh, or rather, it, it's not about what people claim. It's about what the other side believes that you might do to them. That's that's the bottom line for security interest. And Russia felt all this combination, along with the end of the Minsk Accords, uh, and um, <clears throat> the fact that uh, uh, the policy in Ukraine, which uh, Putin is trying to reverse by pursuing a policy of what he calls denazification, is in fact a slow drip um, suppression and eradication of uh, the, the remnants of Russian culture in Ukraine. The, the Russophile Ukrainians who up until recently, up until let's say early this year, well, hard to know exactly what percentages we're talking about. But if you'll recall the July, the July of last year, Putin made, uh, gave a long 
talk on Russian-Ukrainian relations in which he said the two may be, the, the two nations may be two countries, but they were one people. And um, the Kievan Institute uh, of International Sociology did a survey in Ukraine, <clears throat> throughout Ukraine, of um, how Ukrainians responded to that statement. And it turned out that 42% agreed, agreed right. with Putin. And that percentage in the East and South, the regions that, again, tragically are suffering the brunt of uh, this assault right now, that percentage went up to two thirds. Right. And those are the Ukrainians who were not allowed to listen to when we hear in the U.S. about we have to respect Ukrainian agency. That narrative completely ignores the fact that this is a very divided country between people who, like the ones you mentioned, do identify with Russia than those who don't identify with Russia. But right. in a situation and, and, where you have such division, that's what makes it, one could say, uh, dangerous, if not insane, to try to force it into one camp or, or the other. And that's is, been basically the U.S. policy ever since, for, for many years now. It is a multicultural country. Uh, Putin likes prefers the term pluricultural. And the reason to use that term is to remind people that multiculturalism uh, refers to the individual's choices to be of one or more cultures or to be even of a distinct culture from the majority. Pluriculturalism adds the additional component and a reminder that this uh, cultural diversity is regionally concentrated. And it is regionally concentrated in eastern and uh, southern Ukraine. So uh, you make an essential point for understanding this conflict and its roots, which go back decades. I've actually looked back at some of the historical arguments that have been repeated over this time, and I see them going back at least 150 years about and as I define it, it is a debate and a, and a fight, a struggle over who gets to define the true Ukrainian identity. Is it Galician Western Ukraine, um, the region which uh, for many years was not part of the Russian Empire, but part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and which... Um, as part of that uh, belonging to <clears throat> the Austro-Hungarian Empire was part of an effort by that empire to uh, fight uh, against the expansion of the Russian Empire. So there was a concerted em uh, effort at the end of the 19th and early 20th century <clears throat> on the eve of World War I to round up Russophile Ukrainians in Western Ukraine. As a matter of fact, the first, historically, uh, as I understand it, the first concentration camps in uh, Central Europe, um, in, um, <clears throat> yeah, in, in uh, Central Europe, in Austria, were of um, Galician uh, Russophile Ukrainians. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, that, that is a tragedy that is uh, little known. 
But well, it did essentially you. decapitate the um, the Russian intellectual orientation of Western Ukraine and transformed it into a um, uh, well, a, a much more nationalistically oriented community that distinguished itself first historically from the Poles because that community essentially was taken over by the Poles. One of the one of the historically interesting tragedies of the aftermath of World War One is that the birth of Poland strangled the birth of Ukraine. Uh, that part of uh, Eastern Poland was uh, essentially what Western Ukraine is today. And uh, the first struggle of Ukrainian nationalism was against Polish assimilation. But then when, Pol when that portion of Poland was taken over by the Soviet Union, thanks to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, um, that struggle for Ukrainian independence and unity extending from Western Ukraine over the rest of Ukrainian, uh, what is modern Ukrainian territory, um, took on, uh, it was at that point in 39 that it took on uh, an anti-Soviet, anti-Russian character, which it retains to this day. Let me ask you about the your impression of the impact of the Russian invasion on those, you know, those over 40% who you mentioned who do identify with Russia. I have a friend from Kharkiv who says that, you know, in attacking a place like Kharkiv, Russia is shelling its own people. And he himself is understandably very angry about Russia's invasion. And it's gotten him to rethink his his views about Russia. Um, I'm wondering yeah. if you think if you if, what impact you think the Russian invasion has had on those Ukrainians who who before the invasion did identify with Russia. Do you think there's been a shift in opinion now? Maybe there's less desire to be a part of Russia or is that or is that or is that overblown? The desire to be part of Russia in Malaros, Ukraine, that's the generic term for East and South, Russophile Ukraine, was never great. Um, those regions that were willing to fight for that right did so uh, in Donbass and, uh, and in Crimea. So they staked that claim. And uh, Putin, as you'll recall, in 2015, did everything he could in the Minsk agreements to force the Donbas region to rejoin Ukraine. And this was important, I think, for Russia geostrategically to uh, bolster uh, the population uh, of uh, Ukraine and make sure that uh, those num the number of people who would be sympathetic to Russia uh, didn't fall uh, as dramatically as it did without Donbass and and um, and Crimea. So the bottom line is that this does shift opinions against Russia, specifically, perhaps, perhaps more specifically against the Russian government, but obviously partially both the government uh, and, uh, and the general population. But I wouldn't, I, I have, there are many historical analogies 
to what happens to cognate communities that fight in a civil war down the road. The Mexican-American War, which took half the country, was the bloodiest that we had known at the time. Ulysses S. Grant, I was just doing some reading on this. Ulysses S. Grant called uh, the Civil War God's punishment <laughs> upon America for uh, what it did to the Mexicans in the Mexican-American War. We've had 10 uh, invasions of Mexico by the United States since then. Do all Mexicans hate Americans? Well, no. <laughs> it's a complicated relationship. Uh, but we try to get along nevertheless. And in many respects, you know, American tourists seem to be welcome, American investments, etc. <clears throat> Irish and English, you know, who could have imagined after all that Ireland has suffered at the at the hands of the English and the current partition? That, uh, that the two would be on speaking terms. And yet, from all I know, despite all the anti-Irish jokes that you get in, <laughs> in England that you hear, uh, you know, the two, the two communities managed to get along. I hope that in the long run, uh, that sort of civility will trump uh, current passions and anger. You talk about Zelensky. He's now portrayed widely in the Western media as this hero who's standing up for his country, defending his country. I'm curious your thoughts on the position that he was put in because he ran on a platform of peace with an overwhelming mandate. Huge uh, percentage of the country voted for him, promising to make peace, to basically put an end to the war in the Donbass that's been going on for eight years. And he comes in and he immediately faces threats from the far right of Ukraine. He was threatened with even the loss of his government. Uh, people threatened to overthrow him if he implemented the Minsk Accords. And it's my impression he got no support in implementing Minsk in pursuing peace from Washington, which has a huge amount of sway over his government. I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Well, both uh, Petro Poroshenko and Vladimir Zelensky ran on peace platforms. Poroshenko famously promised that he could arrange peace with Russia in a matter of hours after being elected in May of 2014. But that didn't work out. And I think you're right to point to the far right which I think, whose role I think is misunderstood uh, in Ukrainian society today. Its role is not, uh, it's, it's, um, let's say its power in society, the scope of its influence is not defined by the number of votes it gets. <clears throat> it is rather defined by the extent of its influence on civil society and particularly the militarized aspect of civil society. Uh, there are in Ukraine uh, 
since 20, well, no, this is before 2014, but, but certainly since 2014, these have been given a great deal of promise, prominence uh, and legitimized paramilitary organizations. And these paramilitary, pari, paramilitary organizations of the far right, and there are an entire slew of them, and they go through name changes and reorientations, but they all kind of focus on the overarching uh, objective of establishing a nationalistic Ukraine. That kind of nationalism is one that defines uh, the independence of Ukraine and its sovereignty as an absolute goal. And the way to achieve that sovereignty is by eradicating Russian influence in Ukraine. Eradicating Russian influence, cultural, uh, economic, religious, essentially eradicating all those Russophone Ukrainians who, are, who last year were 42%, uh, from political life uh, so that Ukraine can be pure and thereby united uh, by being defined, by having Ukrainian identity defined entirely in its Galician Western Ukrainian context, <clears throat> we will finally have a united Ukraine. And the influence of this thinking extends far beyond a handful of far-right radicals. This thinking has been espoused openly by several Ukrainian presidents, by Viktor Yushchenko, the hero of the 2004 Maidan as president, uh, publicly, and by several prominent Ukrainian writers and political thinkers. Uh, but that's, that's also part of civil discourse. What the uh, paramilitary aspect adds to it, however, is that this uh, myth and this the status of these paramilitary groups was greatly heightened by their role in uh, forming the, the, the vanguard of the defense of the Maidan, of being, playing essentially the key role in the success of the Maidan in its, when that, uh, struggle against the Yanukovych regime shifted from being this is, this is the a, coup a in public, 20, this is the in coup in 2014 yeah, yeah. Uh, shifted from being a peaceful demonstration to a violent demonstration these uh, far right organizations most prominently the right sector but there are others as well trizup uh, c14 uh, that um, these organizations uh, really stepped up and uh, assumed a, uh, the defense of the Maidan in a military capacity and uh, organized the, the potential military retreat of uh, the Maidan. Had the Yanukovych regime attacked and dispersed them, they were setting up, as, as Andrei Parubi, the later speaker, uh, 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 pointed out, they already had uh, a backup plan to uh, hole up in Western Ukraine and continue the military struggle for Ukraine from there.
Now, on that point, I just want to say that there was a recently a leader of the C-14 neo-Nazi gang gave some public comments shortly before the Russian invasion in Kiev, where he said that the neo-Nazis were mm. responsible for 90% of the effectiveness of the Maidan coup success. And without them, without the neo-Nazis in the Maidan, the whole thing, in his words, would have been a gay pride parade. Well, I, I can't comment on the gay pride, but the, the that sort of claim uh, is indeed one that impresses civil society generally. So uh, one is sort of like the romantic notion that here are our modern Kazakh heroes who are willing to fight uh, against the Russian aggressor. And here they are now. They're willing to fight for uh, to recapture uh, Donbass and Crimea, but now they are also in the vanguard of the current defense of the country. So that rallies support uh, to them. Um, but there's another more sinister component, which is part of every military uh, scenario in history. And that is uh, the execution of the fifth column at home. So um, there are obviously hit lists and killings going on already. We have, we know about them. Uh, mayors that say, well, you know, uh, we're in Russian occupied territory. We have to start to negotiate for, you know, civil, uh, for, for the humanitarian uh, conditions not to deteriorate. And those people get targeted and taken out. There was a the diplomat, most notorious there was a diplomat example. A, member, a member of the negotiating team that went to meet with Russian officials in Belarus, and he was executed by Ukrainian intelligence on accusations right. of being a traitor. Right, right. And the Ukrainian security services are one of those groups in Ukrainian society that has, you could say, benefited or been, been infiltrated the most by sympathizers from the far right. They've been invited in since 2014. And again, the reason for this is perfectly logical from a nationalist standpoint. Uh, you need to have totally loyal troops, loyal to uh, the integrity of Ukraine. And uh, arguably their assertion is that many of the, why did we lose? Why did Ukraine lose? Well, specifically Crimea, because 70% of the security services there were locals and 70% of the, of, uh, of the um, military uh, there went over to the Russian side uh, when, when they were given a, a choice of where to uh, put their allegiance. And uh, of course, probably... Well, they were worried clearly that something similar would happen unless there was a thorough cleansing of these institutions uh, with troops, with, with these kind of shock troops. When, uh, when I speak about this war, I, I can't fathom that Putin had no other options but to launch an invasion. Um, if his concern was protecting the people of the Donbass, who have been under assault for eight years, 
uh, with the help of the U.S. government, which has been arming and supporting the Ukrainian military, that he could have just gone into the Donbass, not the rest of the country. He could have proposed a, a peacekeeping force, or he could have tried other forms of non-military leverage, like his pipelines that that fuel so much of Europe. Um, and also, he also had he also had Germany and France effectively, I think, on his side. Certainly, they were not excited about Ukraine joining NATO. So I. I don't understand the argument that he had no other options but to launch this full-scale catastrophic invasion, creating over a million refugees, killing civilians. It it, it just doesn't fly with me. But I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Um, if someone were to argue, would, would say to you that Putin had no other options but to invade, what would you say to that? Well, his argument, which he stated, is that the option of just supporting <clears throat> Donbass, those territories, was considered, but ultimately rejected because it would simply be a continuation of the present circumstances. There would be no resolution of the conflict. The issue of NATO uh, expansion, uh, and he underlined, underscored this, is no guarantee. Um, yes, the argument is that uh, this would be delayed, but then his argument is, well, then uh, the next time, however, that you change your mind, when again, we look at you crossly and you don't like this or you don't like that, all of a sudden it'll be on the table and it becomes not a resolved issue, but again, a, a potential weapon against us to condition our foreign policy. I think the, and fine, well, let me just say that at this point, so the objective is to break out, as Putin sees it, to break out of a box. But you say, uh, nevertheless, I should say, it could be simply a miscalculation. Namely, if uh, his expectation was, perhaps his expectation was, this would be over in one or two weeks. If so, we would be talking about this in very different ways. <laughs> if, um, <clears throat> if there had been a popular uprising, if there had been a Crimean scenario, or even a Donbass scenario, uh, coming out of this in the first few weeks, two two weeks, two three weeks, uh, we'd be talking about this in a very different way. Right now, uh, the again, I would I'm, I am reluctant to talk about uh, the military situation, but I'll say this much about it because it seems to me axiomatic about how military. The, the military and diplomacy scenarios interact. Until the military scenario is clear, is, is really um, undeniable to both sides, there's nothing to negotiate. It only becomes a subject for negotiation, let's say if, if Russia is successful in, at this point, encircling 
and essentially it's, it's encircling the main force of the Ukrainian army and um, uh, then giving it the option of being annihilated or surrendering. Then there is something that Zelensky wants and has to give in to uh, negotiate for. If on the other hand, the Ukrainian armed forces successfully stall, begin to entrench and perhaps even push back if there are significant casualties and um, partisan warfare against uh, Russian troops uh, and losses, then uh, Putin has something to negotiate about as well. So until that situation is something that both sides clearly see more or less the same way, not the way it's portrayed to us, which is largely an emotional roller coaster in the media, but actually that you know military specialists can look at and understand and say, this is going this way or that way pretty, pretty consistently now. Uh, until that moment, and I don't think it'll be that long. I think within a month, that issue should be clarified one way or the other. I don't expect negotiations to move very, very quickly. When you see them moving, that'll be an indication. Oh, this hasn't been this hasn't been mentioned on the on the nightly news, but you know it looks like this situation now uh, has clarified one way or another militarily. That's why we're seeing these negotiations. Let me ask you to comment on what your sense of the U.S. strategy in Ukraine, how they've used Ukraine as essentially uh, a proxy to uh, fight Russia for many years now. Going back to the 2014 Maidan coup, we know now from the leaked recording of Victoria Nuland, who's now a senior official under Biden, the U.S. played a key role in selecting the new leadership that uh, took over from the government that they overthrew, the Yanukovych government they overthrew in February 2014. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week. You know, I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, it, I think that's you know? I think that's right. Okay. Then you have a proxy war breakout in the in the Donbass, where Russia backs the uh, ethnic Russian, Russian-speaking rebels. The U.S. backs the coup government in uh, Kiev. Obama was initially resistant to calls from everybody in, in his administration, including Joe Biden, to arm Ukraine even further, to further inflame the proxy war that the Obama administration help start. Then you have uh, in late 2016, Lindsey Graham and John McCain and Amy Klobuchar go over to Ukraine and they, they meet with the fighters and they promise them more weapons to bring the fight to Russia and Lindsey Graham's words. Your fight is our fight. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of a Russian aggression. 
It is time for them to pay a heavier price. I believe you will win. I am convinced you will win, and we will do everything we can to provide you with what you need to win. And then under Trump, as Trump is being accused of being a Russian agent, Trump backs off of the Obama policy and authorizes these weapon sales to Ukraine, uh, which continues to fuel the conflict. Trump gets impeached when he puts those weapon sales on pause, which shows the extent to which the U.S. is committed to fueling the proxy war. And that's when Adam Schiff, I don't know if you remember this, but when he said in January 2020, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. The United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. So now the fight is coming to a catastrophic end as Russia is invading Ukraine. And the U.S. so far seems completely incapable of abandoning its refusal to take NATO expansion off of the table. And now we're learning from reporting like in The Washington Post and The Times that in December, when Vladimir Putin was making his demands for neutrality for Ukraine, the U.S. was moving thousands of weapons into Ukraine and was even, it, it looks like, making plans to train an insurgency. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can comment on that, is how the U.S. has used Ukraine since 2014 and what it's doing now. Well, <clears throat> the examples you give uh, are ones that I would expect to see the U.S. pursue, largely in the context of contingency planning. You do a lot of uh, preliminary preparation and groundwork for these sorts of contingencies. Um, <clears throat> however, there is a larger context to America's attitude toward what, uh, what Ukraine means in terms of our strategy toward Russia. I've, I've written a couple of times uh, articles uh, which decry uh, U.S. policy as not being about Ukraine itself, because it doesn't take into account any of the complexities of Ukrainian society itself. And if it did, our policy would be about healing those, uh, those rifts and getting the people who are fighting amongst themselves on a lot of different levels, not necessarily always militarily, but culturally, religiously, ideologically, getting them to sit down, talk to each other. And, and our greatest hope would be for, for a government of national unity. We, we didn't do that. And the reason is because we have another agenda for Ukraine, which has been around for a very long time. And it was most famously articulated and popularized by Zbigniew Brzezinski, namely to carve, to, to ensure that Ukraine never becomes part of Russia again. Because as he famously put it in his book, about uh, the chessboard of Eurasia, something like that, that, um, <clears throat> that uh, uh, Russia with Ukraine is an empire and without it is not. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. And he himself, to be fair, at certain points was not always sure 
that that would work out for Ukraine, that it was the best thing for Ukraine. But nevertheless, it became such a mantra in Washington that everything else, every uh, every uncertainty, every qualm about our policy was swept under the rug by just saying, well, clearly we have to support Ukrainian independence come, come hell or high water. And without, you know, wanting to plug Tucker Carlson too much, but one thing he has certainly made clear in his broadcasts, along with people like Patrick Buchanan, is that, you know, why is this, he's asked, why, why is this U.S. in the U.S. national interest? And that's, that's an important question to ask. Because one of the consequences of making the independence of Ukraine a priority for U.S. foreign policy is that given what has happened in our relations, it has driven Russia closer to China, into China's arms. And that always seemed to Kissinger, and I think ultimately to Brzezinski, the much greater danger to U.S. national security interests. And yet we've accomplished that by, by pursuing the lesser interest. As we're speaking, Victoria Newland has made some news by claiming that there are bio, that there are biological research facilities inside of Ukraine, and she's worried that Russia will seize them. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100 percent it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. There's been speculation that sh that was a reference to Ukraine having biological weapons labs. I realize this is very speculative, but do you have any thoughts on that, that this could pose a, a serious danger in Russia's invasion? Hmm. Given the history that Victoria Newland has, uh, and you, you alluded to the recording of her conversation with U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt. What she did in that incident, uh, and perhaps is doing now, is to get ahead of the curve. If, uh, so there have been reports about these bio labs in the Ukrainian media for months, for months, but, not paid attention to and more or less dismissed as, as not being substantiated. If there is something to this 
And if there is some connection to the United States, as was implied in the Ukrainian media reports about these labs, then it would make sense to try to begin to shape the narrative by not claiming responsibility, but by casting it as, well, this we should be worried about this getting into the wrong hands. Um, and sort of skipping over the fact that <laughs> the discussion of how did they get there in the first place? Because we, you know, the Russians will have some sort of documentation. We'll say, ah, that's fake, <laughs> and, and that's all we'll know. That, that you know, who's gonna who's gonna confirm what? We won't know anything uh, until everything's declassified fifty years from now. <laughs> so this is all like like the war reporting itself. This is part of the spin game uh, that that uh, is war today. Probably always been war, but especially today. <laughs> well, we're going to wrap. So any final words for us? It's a scary time for Ukrainians, especially. But now the world is also being prepared yeah. for a new recession with this yeah. essential economic <laughs> warfare on Russia, U.S. blocking Russian oil. Any final words for us, Nikolai? On, on what you're anticipating, what you're worried about going forward? Well, I do have a, a theme I'm, I think is very important, and that is uh, tragedies will happen, wars happen. Plato famously said, only the dead have seen the end of war. But um, there is a way to break out of the tragic cycle tout my forthcoming book. It's in the way that tragedy has uh, been used and was used in Greek society to bring enemies together. And the, the solution, not a permanent solution, but at least to the breaking of an individual tragic cycle, is to learn compassion, compassion for one's enemies. And if you look at uh, all the classical Greek uh, tragedies, not all, but, but a large number of them, and the lessons uh, of modern tragedies, it often revolves around getting out of the cycle of revenge and repeating violence from generation to generation by understanding how much you yourself contributed to the current situation, bringing that to the table, seeing your, your enemy as yourself and negotiating from there because that's the precondition for true dialogue. Nikolai Petro, professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, editor of Ukraine in Crisis. His forthcoming book is The Tragedy of Ukraine, also a board member for the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord. Nikolai Petro, thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron.